Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open it to the second chapter, the book of Acts. The Pentecost miracle. When Luke wrote this letter in the first century to his friend Theophilus, what we call the book of Acts, he described the Pentecost miracle that would change their lives and the course of history. But that Pentecost miracle has often been, down through the ages, confusing to believers and unbelievers alike. And so it's my prayer this morning that we can bring some clarity as to what really happened there and what the implications are for us because I believe it can change our lives and must change our lives as well. Now you'll remember that Jesus, following the resurrection, appeared to his disciples numerous times. There's 11 recorded times he appeared to them uh, after that resurrection over a period of 40 days. And there was a purpose in that. He was preparing them to be his witnesses. But then just before his ascension, he told them he'd return, but he told them to wait. Wait in Jerusalem because he said, John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He ascended, they waited, and it happened. The Holy Spirit fell upon them, and that's what is recorded here in the second chapter of the book of Acts. And I want us to look at three aspects of what happened that day. There's an outline in your bulletin. Here's the first. The miracle at Pentecost was a baptism in the Holy Spirit, making God's presence available to every believing Jew and Gentile. Here's how Luke begins this second chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Think Eva or Eniki, uh, a hurricane that you've heard just close hand, maybe from, if you're from the mainland, a tornado that has come close. Uh, that is a violent rushing wind. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now this baptism of the Holy Spirit had audible and visible evidence that something was taking place because they needed to believe that the promise that Jesus had made had been fulfilled. And it certainly was. And he continues, says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? This was a feast, uh, this Pentecost, and they'd come from all over the Mediterranean world. In fact, got a map here, kind of visualize. Here's Jerusalem where the feast was being held, but they'd come from as far east as modern-day Iran and from up in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, all the way from Rome and down in North Africa, uh, Libya and Egypt and the island of Crete. They'd gathered in that city of Jerusalem. And, and now 
They were hearing their own languages and dialects being spoken by these disciples, these Galileans who had their own distinctive accent and they were uneducated. How would they know these languages? And they said, in verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Isn't that a contrast in responses to the same event? Some are amazed and perplexed, and they ask the question, well, what does this mean? Others hear the same thing, and they're making fun of these guys. No, oh, they're just drunk. Well, I think that that's always been the case when God moves. And it's always been the response to the people of God and the things of the Lord. That There's two responses. Some people are amazed and perplexed, and, and some just ridicule. A couple of weeks ago, a senator, Florida senator, Marco Rubio, one morning tweeted out a couple of Bible verses. Oh, there was a firestorm in the media about this. In fact, uh, they, they also uh, started tweeting as well. But here's the tweets that the senator put out. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Some of you recognize that as Jesus' words in John 14 to his disciples. He tweeted that. And then he tweeted this one. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. The Lord works out everything for his own ends. Well, they just couldn't believe that he would tweet Bible verses. And so the reporters started tweeting and one of them tweeted, unsettling. Another, oddly terrifying. And another, either he was hacked or he's totally lost it. Well, as it happens, Senator Rubio had gone to Mass that morning. He's a Catholic. He had heard those verses in the priest's homily. He was touched by them, and he sent them out. And he's been doing that for a long time. Over the last six months, there's numerous verses that he's tweeted out, including several from the Proverbs. And um, some people probably saw that and thought, wow, that's perplexing. I wonder what that means. Others just mocked and ridiculed the senator for doing that. Nothing's changed. But Pentecost, April 33 A.D., when this promised baptism of the Holy Spirit happened, that was the response. I want you to understand the timeline here because these were Jewish people who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that audible and visible evidence convinced them that the Holy Spirit had come. But what about the Gentiles? Because the church was born that day and it grew explosively, which we'll see. But uh, months and years rolled by and they continued to share the gospel with their Jewish family and friends. Until finally, persecution drove them out of Jerusalem. Some went to Samaria. They started preaching down there. And a revival broke out. And non-Jews, they were Hapa, they were Jewish uh, Jews and Gentiles, mixed race, despised by the Jews, they started responding to the gospel and they were getting saved. Whoa, that was a crossing a line there. And then, eight years after Pentecost, 33 AD, eight years later, Peter is down on the Mediterranean coast staying with a friend in Joppa. 
when he's up on the roof praying, all of a sudden he has a vision. And there's a big sheet that drops down in front of him and it's filled with animals. But these are not just any animals. They're unclean animals according to the Jewish diet. They were non-kosher. And then there was a voice that said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, No, Lord, I've never let anything like that cross my lips. Sheet went up, came down again, same command, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Same response from Peter. Happened three times. Then it lifted up. And at that moment, there was a knock at the door downstairs, and it was some messengers that said that their master, a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, had sent them to this home because a man named Peter had a message for him and his household, and they were to ask Peter to go with him. Peter starts putting things together, and he's saying, maybe this vision had to do with this, and because the Gentiles were unclean, to, to us Jews, and okay, so he decided to go. So he accompanies them, and here's an interesting point. Peter takes with him six Jews. They accompany him. You'll see why that's important in a moment. So they go to Caesarea, to the centurion's home, and when they get there, it's filled with people. He's got his whole entourage there, his, his family and associates, and they're filling that house Peter goes into the house, which a Jew wouldn't do normally, and he starts sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and preaching to them. And you read in Acts chapter 10, as he was speaking, it said, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then someone said, well, who can forbid that these people be baptized? And so they baptized them. Well, by the time they got back to Jerusalem, word had reached the other disciples, including some really hardliners, that Peter had gone into the home of a Gentile and they'd baptized these Gentiles. They were in hot water. And so they called them on the carpet and they wanted an explanation why they would do this. Hard for us to imagine the prejudice that existed, but this was centuries old. And so Peter begins to explain. He tells them about his vision. He tells about the messengers. He tells about going up there to that home in Caesarea and how the Holy Spirit had fallen. And then he says this, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. This is powerful. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning eight years earlier. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So in Peter's mind, he knew that what happened on Pentecost was the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit. But then eight years later, when he says the same thing happened, I mean, I'm believing there were tongues of fire and there was a loud and violent rushing wind. He said the same thing happened then. And I'm convinced that he believed this also was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, why were those six Jews with Peter? I think they were with him to witness what transpired here with the Gentiles so they could agree, yeah, 
Exactly the same thing has happened in the beginning. And because of that, these Jewish people in Jerusalem quieted down and realized Gentiles were part of the church as well, that this baptism had come to them as well. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever witnessed, uh, been in a prayer meeting or something, and all of a sudden there's a loud, violent, rushing wind, and there's tongues of fire sitting on everybody's heads. I don't know if that's it had happened to me. I don't think it's happened to you either. In fact, I think these were historical events. Pentecost, Cornelius' household, to show that the Holy Spirit had come and baptized uh, these Jewish people in the church and also Gentiles. And since then, when we come to faith in Christ, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. But you're probably not going to hear the wind or see the fire. But it's already come. And so uh, Paul, the apostle, uh, Paul, he uh, puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Each of us is a part of the one body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But the Holy Spirit has fitted us all together into one body. We have been baptized into Christ's body by the one Spirit and have all been given that same Holy Spirit. So if you're a follower of Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, you didn't even know it, but the Holy Spirit baptized you into the body of Christ and came to dwell within you. That's what God does to us. And then we respond in water baptism. That's something we can do to declare our commitment to follow him. But this baptism that happens to us isn't as visible and tangible as it was historically in those two events. But it's nevertheless a baptism of the Spirit. Here's a conclusion I have, and I almost entitled my message this. We're all Pentecostals because we all benefit from what happened to Pentecost. Now, in today's church world, there's the non-Pentecostals, the anti-Pentecostals, and folks that aren't sure. Uh, we've misused those terms. Uh, in today's church world, if you're a Pentecostal, that means you probably speak in tongues, and you expect a miracle in every church service. And actually, this is my opinion based on Scripture, uh, the New Testament says, of course all don't speak in tongues. That was never the intent. Uh, God distributes gifts, and some receive gift of tongues. There it was languages. Some today say it's a prayer language from 1 Corinthians 14. Yeah, very possibly, okay. But then folks down on the other end of the spectrum in churches today say, well, there's no such thing today. That all passed with the apostles. No miracles, no signs, no tongues. Okay, well, it's all gone. I, I don't think that's true either. I think you have to do some mental gymnastics to get to that conclusion. Personally, and this is my opinion, uh, the truth is somewhere in the middle, that the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 says, distributes gifts to each one in the body of Christ so that we have differing gifts so that we together can do the work of the Lord in this world. Just like the physical body has many different members, so the body of Christ has different members different gifts, and we're all actually Pentecostals, whether we speak in tongues or not. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit that placed us into the body of Christ. And now, 
We are to be filled with the Spirit as these folks were again and again and again. And uh, sometimes we can have the Spirit, but because we're not walking in faith, we're not filled with the Spirit. But that's a different message. And so what we need to understand is that uh, He's given this gift of the Holy Spirit to every believing Jew and Gentile. And if you are a believer, you have that Spirit within you, and you have been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit. The second point is this. The miracle at Pentecost was the fulfillment of centuries-old prophecies and pictures pointing to Jesus. So they've been ridiculed and mocked, and in verse 14 it says, But Peter taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. A fellow told me on the Lanai between services that uh, he goes to an AA group and they read that verse and those guys said, well, that wouldn't have stopped us. <laughs> but it did these guys. He said, it's only 9 o'clock. These guys aren't drunk. And then he quotes from the prophet Joel. And I won't read it to you, but he talks about how Joel, centuries earlier, had prophesied that in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I've had some weird dreams lately. Have any of you? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about visions for what God wants to do and dreams for uh, possibilities in the kingdom. And then he goes on to say, And in those days, in the last days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned to blood. To me... Put that together with Revelation. Sounds a little bit like a nuclear holocaust ending the age. Maybe. But this spirit that was poured forth was the fulfillment of the prophet Joel from centuries earlier. He continues. And he says, Joel said that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter says this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Boy, that's an accusation, isn't it? I mean, Peter nailed these people standing there saying, you saw the miracles, you heard the teaching, and yet you delivered him up to death by the hands of godless men. It was an accusation. And so, interestingly, sometimes down through the ages, the church has used this against the Jewish people, this and other verses like it, and have called them the Christ killers. But Peter didn't limit it to them. He said, by the hands of godless men. Who was that? That was the Romans. Well, who is responsible ultimately for killing Christ? Well, we know that it was Jews and Gentiles here, but down through the ages, 
it's been all of us because of our sin that made the sacrifice of Christ necessary. But who's responsible? God himself. He says, you delivered him up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God is ultimately responsible for the death of Christ on that cross. What was his motive? You always look for a motive in a murder, right? His motive was love because he wanted to rescue us from our sinfulness and bring us back to him. And so he's thrown out this accusation to them and then he turns from Joel to David and he says in verse 25, for David says of him, speaking of the Messiah, and then he goes into this part of his message where he talks about David's prophecy about how the Lord won't abandon my soul to Hades or allow my flesh to decay. And Peter says, hey guys, I'm paraphrasing. He says, hey guys, David died. He was buried. In fact, his tomb is with us to this day. His flesh did decay. In fact, by the way, you can still see the tomb of David in Jerusalem today. He said David wasn't speaking of himself. He was speaking of a descendant that was promised to him who would sit upon his throne forever. This was the Messiah whom you have crucified. And so he brings yet another prophecy to bear and say, he was coming, he was prophesied to come, and you nailed him to a cross. So there's not only prophecies that spoke of the coming Messiah, Jesus, that he fulfilled, but many of you know there are also many pictures in Scripture that uh, spoke of his coming as well. And I want to just show you, uh, through the feasts of Israel, how those pictures are beautifully displayed. There were seven feasts that the Jewish people celebrated. In fact, Orthodox Jews still celebrate them today. These seven feasts had a threefold aspect to them. The first spoke about the seasons of the year, the harvests that would take place, and there was something related to each of those about that. Also, with each of these seven feasts, there was something that they were remembering, looking back to remember what God had done. Now, interestingly, there's a third element. Each of these seven feasts looked forward to Jesus Christ and how he would fulfill each meaning of those feasts. Let's take a look at a graph here. This just kind of sketches out, okay, you got your three harvests, spring, summer, and fall. Here's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, and then trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, and the last great day. The first three had to do with his first coming. So did the fourth, the church at Pentecost. And then the other four will be fulfilled at his second coming. He came as a lamb the first time, as a lion in judgment the second time. Notice here there's 50 days, though, between first fruits and Pentecost. Let's go to the next slide, please. It shows it a little differently. Here's this uh, Passover feast. And remember, that one looked back to the time when Israel was delivered from Egypt. Remember the tenth plague? How they were to take a lamb, slay that lamb, take the blood and put it up on the doorposts and lintel of their home, and the death angel would pass over those homes and they'd be spared, but the firstborn in all of Egypt would, be, would die. Because of that, they were thrust out of Egypt. Oh, but they had to prepare unleavened bread that night 
And leaven always was a symbol of sin in Scripture. So they took the leaven out of the homes and out of the bread. And uh, then uh, their first fruits was when later in the barley harvest, that would be the first of the harvest, okay? And they came out alive into the wilderness. Well, let's go back here and look how they looked forward. That lamb that was slain, of course, was looking forward to the lamb who would be slain at Calvary, the lamb of God, whose blood would be spilled on that cross so that all who put their, their faith in him would be delivered from sin. And then, three days later, as first fruits was celebrated, that's when Christ came forth from the tomb. Paul said the first fruits from among the dead, the first to be raised immortal forever. And then Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples, tells them to wait in Jerusalem. They did. Ten days later, pente means 50. Uh, ten days later, wow, the Holy Spirit fell and the church was born. And these other feasts will be fulfilled later. But isn't it amazing? The pictures that God built into his plan. And this is just one facet of those pictures in the Old Testament. But it helps us to realize his plan of redemption was planned from the beginning and laid out. And we are the ones who are the recipients of all his love. Well, Peter concluded this message with these powerful words. This Jesus, he said, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's not letting them off the hook. He's pressing it in, saying, you're responsible. And that's what each of us needs to hear that we're responsible. And what are we going to do about that? But it was the prophecies, it was the pictures that pointed to Jesus. And then finally, the miracle at Pentecost gave birth to the church, which continues to expand wherever the church proclaims and lives out the gospel, starting at Pentecost. Because it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and, and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. They'd gather for worship in the temple courts every day, and then they'd go to various homes at night. Remember, still had all these folks from all over the Mediterranean world. And they were sharing with one another as anyone had need. They were in awe as to what God had done. And it says, the Lord was adding daily to their number those who were being saved. Because they were in awe of the gospel in this new life 
and sharing that faith in community. I believe that's what God wants to happen in every church to this day. And it can happen, but we need to align ourselves with what he's doing. Maybe there are some here this morning, and you've just been on the periphery. And you've been, well, I, be I talked to someone yesterday, well, I believe in God, but, you know, that's not part of the church. We need to be all in. We need to realize, like these Jewish people realized, we're responsible. It's my sin that nailed him to that cross. We need to repent if we've not. Change our mind about Jesus. Change the direction of our life and put our faith in Christ and declare that in the waters of baptism and become part of the church. For those of us that are in the church, we need to focus on the mission. And that is rededicate ourselves to, to just taking advantage of this power, this presence within us, and sharing in community with our brothers and sisters so that we're on mission to accomplish the work of the Lord and realize that's our greatest call in life. Not to amass things, not to gain positions, but to, to promulgate, to promote, to uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by our life and by our words. If we'll do that, the Holy Spirit's power will dwell within us and shine forth, and we will see the Lord adding to our number day by day those who are being saved. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I really thank you for this powerful declaration that Luke has given to us as to what happened, but more importantly, what, what, what can happen in each of our lives and in the life of this church as we open our hearts to you. I pray for any here this morning that haven't stepped in and said, Yes, Lord, I believe, I receive, and I want to follow you. And for each of us, Lord, may that be our highest priority and our goal. Move in our hearts by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.